point of view, written by Lightsinger uh, several years ago. Let me take some excerpts. I put them on the screen for you to see this morning. These are a definition of love from a kid's point of view. First one is this. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Second one, when someone loves you, the way you're say, they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. How profound. Love is when someone hurts you and you get so mad, but you don't yell at them because you know it would hurt their feelings. Love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. (laughs) Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Some of these kids have great insight. Love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. Love is when mommy sees daddy smelly, sweaty, and still says he is handsomer than Robert Redford. This book must have been written a few years ago. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you've left him alone all day. You really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget. Just a few excerpts from What is Love from a Kid's Point of View by Light Singer. This morning, the title of the message is God is, and I left a blank. How do we fill in the blank? God is. I know of at least four sentences in the New Testament that start that way, God is. Three of the four are written by the Apostle John. And this morning, we come to his third statement about the nature of God, God is. But I want to look at the other three statements first, real quickly. The first statement is found in John's Gospel, the fourth chapter. This is the chapter where John tells Jesus... um, it tells about Jesus taking the disciples through Samaria on their way to Galilee. They stop at the well of Sychar, where Jesus engaged a woman in conversation. And uh, she said, who are you that you talk to me? You know, he asked her for a drink of water. Who are you that you're a man and a Jew and I'm a Gentile? And he said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me of water to drink that you'd never have to come here and draw water again. You'd never thirst again. And uh, she says, I perceive that you're a prophet and, and uh, give me this water. And he said, well, first go tell your husband. He said, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you've said, well, you have had five of them and now you're trying out number six. You aren't married. This is the point. She said, I perceive you're a prophet. She begins to talk about, well, 
you folks say we should worship in Jerusalem. My parents say we should worship here on Mount Gerizim. Who's right? And at this point, verse 24 comes in. Jesus said, God is spirit. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. That probably says far more than I'm able to comprehend at this moment. I, I know what it means this. God is not confined to the boundaries of a body. The heavens cannot contain him. He's not conformed to being at one place at one time. Because he is a spirit. We understand he is omnipresent. The psalmist declared, There is nowhere I can go to escape from your presence. Even if I make my bed in the place of the grave, he said, I know that you're there. He's as close, the scripture would tell us, as our breath. But even though he's that close, we will not see him with these natural eyes. There, he, he lives in a spirit realm that we do not see unless, like the, the prophet Elisha, you have a moment where he allows you to see into the spirit realm. Remember when he saw the chariots surrounding the city and surrounding the enemy army, and he saw those, and he prayed for his servants' eyes to be opened, that he too would see that the angels of the Lord were all about him. But for the most part, we don't see God. We worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. Well, I believe that worship involves being physically involved. I believe worship involves speaking, it's singing, raising the hands for your joyful people, dancing, and all of those kinds of things. But all of those things can just be things if it doesn't come from my heart from my spirit. I must worship in spirit according to truth. From my heart according to the truth. God is concerned with the internal condition of my heart and mind. God is a spirit. The second one, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. God is spirit. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. God is light tells us that God is perfect in every way. Intellectually, he knows everything. Morally, he's totally righteous. Everything God does is right. He makes no mistakes. He is light. means what you see is what you get. He doesn't appear one way and live in another Absolute truth, absolute holiness. Most of the first two chapters of 1 John are an encouragement for us to walk in the light as he is in the light. Walk in oneness with a heart before the Lord, a heart for holiness. As we walk, as we walk in the light, John says we have this profound fellowship with God the Father and with each other as we share life. 
God is light tells me that there is nothing hidden from God. Amen or oh my. There's nothing hidden from God. He sees everything we do, including the thoughts we think. God is light tells us that God will judge sin and unrighteousness. He will come against the darkness. The third statement is found in, in the book of Hebrews. I don't know who the author is. There's all kinds of um, controversy about that. But I, I know that God breathed upon somebody to write these words. Hebrews 12:29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. Our God is spirit. Our God is light. Our God is a consuming fire. This is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. This is the beginning of Moses' farewell uh, speech and instructions to the children of Israel. He knows that his time has about come to an end. He knows that he's not going to cross the Jordan River because he got angry and, and didn't do what God told him to do. But he tells these people, do not get caught up in idolatry. Don't be making wooden gods or gods out of molding them out of metal because our God is a consuming fire. A consuming fire. He's God is spirit, God is light, a consuming fire. Our lesson text for today is, begins in verse 7 of chapter 4, 1 John. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we, won, if we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. And reading verse 16 as well, just to tied it together somewhat. So we've come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So God is spirit, God is light, God's a consuming fire, and today God is love. God is love. This is the third time in the four chapters where John comes back to this concept of love. This is the relational test. We talked about those tests like, what do you love? Or who do you love? We talked about what do you believe and how do you live? And this is the test to prove the authenticity of your Christian walk. Who do you love? Each time he circles back to these three main things, he gets a little more intense. He gets a little more in-depth to the charge he wants to leave with us. He takes us to the ultimate level 
of what love is by looking very, very closely at the very nature of love, which is to say the very nature of God and how this love is manifested in this world. In my NIV study Bible, there's an interesting note at the, the bottom of the page. In the f- five chapters of this letter, the word love is used 43 times in the five chapters. 32 of those times are recorded between chapter 4, verse 7, and chapter 5, verse 4. It's all about love. And over and over, we are told to love one another. You can't be a Christian without love. Because Jesus said the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is to love your neighbors yourself. And then he raised the level and he said, love one another as I have loved you. All of the prophets, all the laws hang on these two commandments, he said. Love. Love. So John keeps coming back to that, and part of the reason that he's coming back to that is he's trying to eradicate the heresy that the Gnostics are bringing in to the church where it's all about knowledge. John wants to know it's, not more, it's about more than knowledge. It's about a relationship with a living God, and Jesus Christ is God, was God, and always will be God. Love God. Love one another. God is love. God is the source of love. When it says God is love, God is a source of love. He is a source of love. In the wedding ceremony that I've used for the last how many years, I tell the couple getting married that they need to keep God first because He is the source of love. He's the source of love. God's essence is love. His very essence is love. This goes beyond God loves. I'm thankful that God loves. But this is who he is. His very essence is love. Everything God does is love. It's not just one of the activities that he puts on his day timer i got to do this today. Everything he does is love. He judges in love. He administers justice in love. He goes before us and after us in love. God is love. Before I talk more about the love of God, a little disclaimer, I'll probably come back and preach from the same text next week because there's so, so much in here, but... We'll hit the high points this morning and we'll see what the Lord has for us next week. I think we need to be reminded of the righteousness of God while we're speaking about the love of God. Some would have you believe that because God is love, that he's so overwhelmed and overcome with this emotion of love that he can merely overlook sin and unrighteousness. That's not the case. God cannot wink at our sin. God cannot, Habakkuk said, he can't even look upon our iniquity. His righteousness will not allow sin 
to go unjudged. God is not and cannot be like the parents who say to the child, if you do that one more time, I'm going to spank you. Six times in the next ten minutes, they repeat it. If you do that one more time, and they never follow through. God's not that way. God has put in place a set of principles and laws that His righteousness and His love demands that He follow through. God's righteousness and His love demands payment in full for sin. Verse 8 ends with those words, God is love. John Stott says this is the most comprehensive and sublime of all the biblical affirmations of God's being. He writes this, it means that at the root of all God does is love. At the root of all that God does is love. No matter how difficult it may appear to us, the fountain from which all God's activity stems is this kind of self-giving love. Even his judgments, his condemnations, they arrive with love. Remember in Hebrews it talks about the father who disciplines his son because he loves them. That's God. Judgment is not something we separate from love. Judgment is not something we separate from love. If you convince me that a holy, loving God cannot judge an evil being, then you will also convince me that he cannot love him. It's inherent in the quality of love to be antagonistic to that which opposes the thing loved. Let me illustrate it this way. You see that in a mother. If a mother is seeing her child attacked in some way, Okay? Mother love flames are shot across the room. It's all about love. Anything that brings a threat to her child, she's going to come against that. God's love is the same. Inherent in it is the quality of judgment. God is a purifying fire consuming and burning away the dross in order that he might preserve the gold. We read it a moment ago, our God is a consuming fire. Love is not always easy to live with because of that very quality. Love is not always easy to live with because God comes in his discipline Sometimes we feel the flame. Amen? If you've never felt it yet, you will. 
if you're growing in faith, that love is not all that, but it's, yet it's the most attractive thing in all the world to live in the love of a father. Because in, even in that judgment, there's this inclusiveness, there's this warmth. I do this because I love you. I do this because I love you. I said it once or twice. My dad, I think I only heard him say it once to me. This hurts me more than it hurts you. I learned real quickly I didn't like the belt, okay? God's love. Verse 9 again. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. As I read that verse, I'm reminded of what He said in chapter 3, verse 18. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. God manifested love by sending His one and only Son. Notice that. The Son was sent. The Son was sent. He came on a mission. He came on a mission. Not a matter of happenstance, not just some coincidence. Jesus was sent by the Father on a particular mission. To declare the love of the Father to humanity, for humanity. Remember what he said in Isaiah, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Jesus was the gift of the Father sent to the world in our behalf. He was sent on a mission and they're anticipating my next note, and they're about 30 seconds too soon. But you got it. You're writing that. When you're done writing, I'll talk to what I said, okay? Jesus was sent on a mission. What was his mission? He was born to be crucified. He was born to be crucified. He knew his mission from the beginning. To die in your place, in my place. I thought about that. Veterans Day was the day before yesterday. Some of you signed up to go on a mission to defend our country. Thank you for doing that. When you signed up for that mission, even though there was the possibility of death, that's not what you signed up for. You signed up to come home, to go do your mission, come home. And thank God you did. And thank God for those who did not. Because they paid the ultimate price for you and I to be able to sit here this morning in freedom. But Jesus, His mission was sent to show the love of God for you and me 
by dying. That was his mission from the beginning. That's why he was able to say from the cross, it is finished. Jesus was and is the eternal Son of God. He was there in the beginning. By him all things were created. Without him nothing was created that was created. He was equal with God the Father in every way. But he came in flesh. A baby born to a virgin. He lived on the planet in the form of a human being for 33 years. Then he fulfilled the purpose he was sent here for by dying on the cross in our place. Dr. Ironside, preacher from a century ago, used to tell of a woman who came to him and said, I don't have any use for the Bible and for all this Christian superstitions. It's enough for me to know that God is love. He said to her, well, do you know that? She said, of course I know that. I've known it all my life. Well, he said, do you think that everyone knows that? Oh, yes, she said. Everyone knows God is love. Well, he said, do you think that woman over in India who's persuaded by her religion to take her little child and throw it into the rivers and offering to the crocodiles has any concept or idea that God is love? Well, no, but... That's mere superstition. Do you think the savage in Africa, bowing down to his idols and wood stone, trembling with fear lest they should strike back at him and destroy his crop and take away his children and even injure his own person? Do you think he has any idea that God is love? She said, no, but in every civilized country we know that God is love. Well, he said, how do we know that? How do we know that God is love? Do the ancients teach this? Do the other religions of the earth teach that God is love and show that God is love? Let me tell you something. Do you know that the only reason we know that God is love is because God, because he sent his son and manifested himself as love? The only reason that we know God is love is because he sent his son and manifested himself as love. He manifested his love in the giving of his son. The book that tells about the Lord Jesus Christ is the only book in the, book in the world that contains the idea that God, behind all created matter, is a God of love. Creation reveals his power, his greatness. What the psalmist said, the heavens declare your glory. But there's nothing in nature that says God is love. The only way that we know God is love is that God manifested his love in the giving of his son. We know that God is love because he manifested his love in the giving of his son. Verse 10. If this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, we've talked about that a few weeks ago. It means he was sent to be the full payment, to appease the law of God, the wrath of God. When you read the story of Jesus' death, the crucifixion, the complete story, the trial, where they beat his face and plucked his beard and spit in his face, the scourging, 
the crown of thorns, the nails, the cross, the spear. You get a glimpse of what God thinks about sin. As he laid on his son the iniquity of all and allowed that to come take place against his body. You begin to see what sin does to mankind. But above it all, you see how much God loves us. Selah. That means stop and think about that. God loves you so much. He put himself in the human body and allowed sinful humans to beat that body beyond recognition and literally snuff his life out and go into the grave. And he left the door open on both ends. That's another message, though. He paid the penalty as the Lamb of God to set us free from our our sin and, and death and hell. Some people have this misconception of God. They compare him to an indulgent grandfather who allows their grandchild to do anything because they're the grandchild and not the kid. It's a whole big, big difference, isn't there? He just forgives it because he's kind. He'll not demand an accounting, nor will he ever insist on any punishment. I've heard grandfathers who I know spank their kids say to their kids when they're spanking their grandkids, don't do that. God's not that way. God in his perfect love, sin had to be paid for. Verse 10, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He came to satisfy justice, to meet the demands of the broken law, to pay the full debt, the full debt, the, to satisfy the penalty. It cannot be ignored. You see, God's love is also just. God's love is also just. Love must be just, and therefore the only love that is worth talking about is a love that satisfies justice. Love that satisfies justice, that's righteous. It's not a mere sentiment poured out in an indulgence, letting him have what he wants or do what he likes and pain all his bit. That's not love. It's love that satisfies the justice. That alone is righteousness. Note the character of love. What kind of love is it? It is love for the unlovely. And this is love, not that we have loved, but that he loved us. God so loved the world. We talked about the world. Who's the world? 
That's the people who are living under the influence of the kingdoms of darkness with no regard to God. God loved the people who had no regard for him. People like you and me before we found Jesus or Jesus found us. How angry we get sometimes at the stubbornness and insolence of other people, their rudeness, hate that's manifested toward us, makes our blood boil and temperature rise and, and we burn and rive within. That's what ugly does. That's what evil does. Every single heart was born under Adam with that kind of thing going on in our heart. And it's constantly revealing itself to the eyes of God. It might be hidden from others. It might even, we might even hide it from ourselves. But God, who sees all things, he sees the ugliness of our sin. And what's his response? Anger? Rejection? Judgment? His response was, he gave himself to take that penalty. He gave himself to pay that price. God himself lived among us and died. I know I keep saying this, but I wanted to get so ingrained in our hearts, our thinking. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us, and while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us in our rebellion, our selfishness, self-centeredness. Not that he loved those, those qualities. On the contrary, he loved us in spite of those. He, he, he loved us because we were in desperate need. His love is beyond my comprehension. Once, 20 years ago, when I was studying this passage, it was in October, and Vicki and I had been to the Grace International uh, Christian Evangelic Assemblies at that time, a convention in Southern California, and we took a couple extra days after the convention just to enjoy the sunshine, because when you go to convention, you see the sunshine outside. Because in those days they had morning services, afternoon services, and evening services. And anyway, so we spent a couple of days. And one of those days we went to Santa Monica Pier and uh, just enjoyed walking through the shops. And we're going to have lunch there on one of those little cafes there out on the pier itself. And while we were having our lunch, some kind of seafood because we were at the beach. And uh, we noticed at least three, what we called 20 years ago, winos, people who were obviously homeless and had uh, become debilitated more or less by whatever their vices might have been. One of the guys there, a couple of them were older, but one of them appeared to be in about his 30s. Dirty, 
hair a mess, no shirt, no shoes. He was wearing a pair of Levi cutoffs. They were probably about a size 40 in the waist. And he's wearing his undershorts. Did I mention that his waist size couldn't have been 30 inches? And he had these, you remember that? He had these and he was holding them up until he went to a garbage can to find some leftovers that somebody had put in the garbage can to eat. And then he would let go of his cutoffs and they would drop to the ground and you hoped that his slipping underwear stayed up. Uh, he took out a plate out of one of those garbage cans and licked the ketchup off of it. Um, when he came by the cafe patio where we were eating, Vicky felt sorry for him, wanted me to give him something to eat. Being the kind and compassionate man I am, I said, no way. <laughs> He's an able body. Looks like to me he's chosen his lifestyle. I'm not going to reward him for his show. Paul said if a man doesn't eat or doesn't work, he doesn't eat. I didn't tell you that story to talk about feeding derelicts. What I want you to see is the depth of the love the Father has for us. Because that filthy bum on the Santa Monica Pier is a picture of each and every one of us before we came to Jesus Christ. Aren't you thankful I'm not God? Jesus did not come because we we're worthy or lovable or cute. He didn't come because we were trying so hard or even because we asked Him. God sent His Son because he loved us. And even though we deserve death and hell, he didn't want us to experience that. The Father wanted us to live. The Father wanted us to live. 1 John 4, 9 Reading it again, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. John, Jesus made this so real to John over and over in His Gospel. He writes about eternal life. In John chapter 1, verse 4, in Him was life. And the life was the light of men. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal what? Life. Eternal life. John 4.14, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up into eternal Life. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life. 
He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John 6, 51, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 8, 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to him, I'm the resurrection of the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 20, verse 31, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John 10, 10, The thief comes only to steal, and kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Thank God for the life that we have this morning in Jesus Christ. Three people. Thank God for the life we have this morning in Jesus Christ. I am loved. You are loved by the God of all heaven. Have you been born again? Like Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. The evidence that I have been born again is love. The evidence that I have been born again is love. Verse 7 said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In verses 20 and 21 of chapter 4, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he says, he's a liar. If you can't love your brother whom you seem, how can you love God whom you cannot see? Point number two, we have a responsibility to love one another. We have a responsibility to love one another. Beloved, if God so loved us, verse 11 says, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We have a command to love one another. The proof of our relationship with Jesus Christ is we love one one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples. You have love one for another. Love one another. Love is not only for those who are pleasant to us, who are nice to us, congenial. We're not to love because people are lovable but because each is another. Love one another. Everyone is a person capable of a unique relationship with the living God. Therefore, not a thing to be dealt with impersonally or to be opposed or accepted as it suits our purpose, but a living, breathing, searching creation of God just like us. That's why we are to love one another. True love is an interest in and concern for another person just because he's a person or she's a person 
and for no other reason. True love is an interest and concern for another person just because he is or she is a person and for no other reason. Doesn't matter rich, poor, black, white, old, young, male or female, Republican, Democrat, it makes absolutely no difference. He or she is a person. A high school girl wrote these words. You know, all my life I've been doing like everyone else. I've been kind to my friends and polite to strangers and nasty to all those they didn't like. Until suddenly it dawned on me that Christians are not to be kind only to those who are nice to them or to their friends. Their Christians are to be kind to everyone because they're people and because we're Christians. That puts it exactly. That's what love is. It takes no notice of what a person is or what they're like or what they does, how they dress. One thing. Here's another person like me that Jesus died for. Another person just like me with longings and heartaches, and searchings and problems, aspirations, hopes and dreams and frustrations. Another person facing the struggles of life. How can I help them? That's love. In these verses, we have this great exhortation to love one another because, as John marvelously tells, that kind of love can only originate with God. This kind of love is of God. It can only come, it is of God. It is of God. He's the source of love. God is love. Wherever the life of God is present, that love is found. If that love is not found, what's that mean about God's presence? The argument is clear. It's no good to claim you know God if the love of God is not found inside our hearts. If we cannot treat people with love and see through the irritating qualities they offend us, if your reaction to those who offend you is opposition, Rejection, antagonism. John says, then you probably shouldn't say you belong to God. If the life of God is present, then the love of God will be there too. Verse 11 is the answer to every lame excuse on our part. Oh, I just can't love that person. You don't know what she's like or he's like. If you have to live with them as I have to live with them, you wouldn't be able to love them either. Beloved, if God so loved us. If you've experienced the love at the foot of the cross. And you have felt that overwhelming cleansing. That's God's love for you. Despite of any antagonism, any rebellion, any selfishness that you may have shown towards him. If he's given you that cleansing wave of grace, wiping out all your sins, forgetting your past, he said, not only can you love someone, but you ought to. You ought to. You owe it. That is your debt. Because God forgave you, we ought to. Our debt is. Our debt is to love others. You owe it to love one another. Paul could say in Romans 1, I'm a debtor to every man. In verse 14, he talks about that. I owe something to everybody. And then in Romans 13, 80, he says this, 
owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We owe it because we, we have within us this fountain of love in the life of God. We have this fountain of love because God is love. And where does God dwell? By His Spirit inside of us. We have this fountain of love. Unless you have the life of God, you cannot love God's way. But if you have the life of God, you can love like this and you ought to do it. That is your call. Love one another as I have loved you. Unless you have the life of God, you cannot love God's way. But if you have the life of God, you can love like this and you ought to because he dwells in you. Remember when the disciples said, Jesus, show us the Father? And his response was, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, then you know what the Father is. You know his desires. I bring that up because, verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. Catch this. And his love is perfected in us. His love is perfected in us. God is invisible. No man has seen God. Though God appeared in, the, in theophanies in the Old Testament where he took on the form of an angel, it took on the form of a man, no one has ever seen God because God said, if you see me, you're going to die. God's a spirit. We also are a spirit being living inside this vessel of clay. You know me by the vessel I live in, and you know some of what I am or who I am by things that I project, but you really can't see all of me, only the Father can. If we love one another, God abides in us, love is perfected. It reaches its final end in us. Where do people today see God's love? How do they know that God is love? It's perfected when we love one another. In carrying out our responsibility to love one another, the world sees the love of God. The world sees the love of God. The indwelling God becomes visible to the world around us when we love one another. As long as we're only nice to our friends, we're just like everybody else. But when we start to be nice to those who are nasty to us, when we start returning good when somebody gave us evil, when we start being patient, tender, and thoughtful, and considerate of those who are stubborn and obstinate and selfish, and saying difficult things, then people get the idea somewhere there has to be a supernatural power. God must be close. God's dwelling in us becomes visible to them. 
The culture in which we live, especially on the West Coast, there are very few people who know about the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <coughs> because today, less than 7% of the people in this state will be attending church this weekend anyplace. Less than 7%. But every man is somewhere reading the gospel according to you. There are people reading the gospel according to you. In your neighborhood, where you shop, your groceries, where you buy your gasoline, where you sit down in the restaurant, the way that you treat the waitresses. Oh, I won't meddle. <laughs> Just three weeks ago, I heard of another lady who was a waitress and has not been back to church because of the way the Christians treated her on Sunday. They're reading the gospel in you. John says, let's do this. Let's love one another. It's not an automatic thing. I wish it were. It demands the agreement of our will. It demands the agreement of our will. Love is a verb, but it's also a decision. It's a decision. It's an act of my will. Let us deliberately love one another. Let us make channels for this life to be manifested. Kind of a homely illustration, but we need to see ourselves like we are garden hose. We have a spigot. And this garden hose can spread the love of God if we will turn the spigot on because God is inside of us. Share his love. Deliberate acts of kindness. Deliberate acts of thoughtfulness, consideration. Deliberate acts of patience and tolerance. But John says that God is love. This love is pouring out from this amazing being. Us. Each one of us, as this love is pouring through this, Love is perfected only when it becomes visible in us. Love is perfected only when it becomes visible in us. That's amazing. God's ultimate and final conclusion, God's love reaches its ultimate and final conclusion when it's visible in us. There's a world dying for love. I mean, way back in the 70s, they wrote what the world needs now is love, sweet love. People talk about it. They write songs about it. Good songs, bad songs, painful songs. People looking for love. And we are the only channels by which the love the world is searching for can ever be released. We are the only channels by which the love the world is searching for can ever be released. Therefore, brethren, above all else, put on love. Let us love one another and be known as people who love one another. 
Final note, your concern for another or my concern for another brings the full picture of God to a lost and dying world. My concern, your concern,